You are listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. All right, let us pick back up with where we were with another lecture in the history of preaching and preachers. This is lecture number 18. Again, in our ninth class meeting, we've just been talking about the history of events in England in the 18th century. We talked about uh, all those, how those things had an effect on preaching and just the whole general religious state in, in England in that period of time. Talked about the Latitudinarians, among other groups, uh, who were uh, you know, directly involved in the situation at that time. We, as we prepare to transition to talking about the all-Baptist lineup tonight of, of pastors that we're going to look a little more in-depth into, I had to get a little bit of a background talk about what, what was happening theologically and, and practically in Baptist life in the early 18th century. Again, a pervasive hyper-Calvinism was uh, taking hold in those early decades of the 18th century. Uh, a number of Baptist writers, preachers, scholars were uh, writing on the subject of the day and were putting forth a, an increasingly stringent form of Cal- Calvinism, uh, really a hyper-Calvinism that sought only to present the gospel to those who understood themselves to be elect. And again, this, this in, in really direct um, uh, confrontation or, or direct, you know, difference from what had happened in the latter part of the 17th century with such a warm evangelical presence among the, the Calvinists of England, Calvinist Baptists of England. So <clears throat> of those preachers who were instrumental in bringing this, this higher and heightened Calvinism into play, one of those men was John Gill. And you see that he was born in the very ending years of the 17th century, 1697, and lived until 1771. Uh, he was born in Northamptonshire, and he, Gill, we know him to be probably, for the, certainly for the 18th century, the top-of-the-line uh, Baptist writer and scholar of that period for, for, for the early part of the 18th century, top, the top-notch guy, consummate scholar, consummate uh, theologian, provided for us some wonderful resources theologically and practically that we can still use today, still find them available today, many of them reprinted and reissued so that we can have those at our disposal now. <clears throat> but interestingly enough, Gail, uh, Gill, not Gail, Gill did not receive any formal education beyond grammar school. Uh, however, he demonstrated exceptional ability, and he learned Latin and Greek while he was very young, and later learned Hebrew and theology. As we'll see later, he became very enamored with Hebrew, loved it, and uh, spent uh, a lot of time learning it. And then later on in life, he writes six volumes in his Old Testament commentary on the whole Bible. He was one of the first to ever produce a, you know, a whole Bible commentary. And um, so that's, that's one of the reprints that are available to us today. Uh, his his uh, exposition on the Old New Testament is a great and very helpful resource for us. So glad to be able to have that in my personal collection. 
Now, in 1716, when he was about 19 years old, he began to preach, and he was ordained a couple of years later. He first served as an assistant pastor of a Baptist church in Hyam Ferrers, but he wasn't there long, because in 1719, he was called to pastor the very same congregation in Southwark, London, that Benjamin Keach had once pastored, and that's the church at Horselie Down or horsely down, depending on how you pronounce it. Again, it's, it's, it's the place where the horses lay down. It's where you put the horses down. And that, so that's, that's sort of the, uh, the you know, vernacular connotation there, just sort of stuck for the name, and that's what it was called. But it was in Southwark, you know, again, right on the river, <clears throat> south, of, south of the city, south of the city of London. And uh, Benjamin Stinton, who had married one of Keach's daughters, uh, had succeeded him as the pastor of that church, and he'd been in there, been pastoring there for about 15 years. From all indications, the church was not in a particularly rigorous state of existence when um, Gill came on board to be their pastor. And just, uh, just parenthetically, uh, this church would eventually be pastored by John Rippon, who we know as a hymn writer, and later, of course, by some guy named Charles Spurgeon. Now, Gill's pastorate lasted 51 years. So again, for, for the various controversies Gill was involved in and for the concerns we might have about him and hyper-Calvinism, or even just high-Calvinism for that matter, nevertheless, uh, his pastor lasted a long time, providing the church with stability, providing the church with uh, a predictable pastoral leadership, also enables the pastor to get to know the people, and they know him, they know his heart, they know where he's leading. That's why a, a lengthy pastorate, as the Lord provides and as the Lord sanctions it, is always a good thing for the church and for the pastor. <clears throat> now, though he faced some challenges initially, eventually he gained many friends and established himself very well. And uh, again, uh, Gill just became well-known as, as a great Baptist um, scholar, preacher, pastor in the middle of the 18th century. He was tireless as a student, became a man of considerable learning and accomplishments. Again, remember, it, he's all self-taught. Beyond grammar school, it's all of it is self-taught. He's all, it's all been personal work and devotion to learning and acquiring knowledge. In particular, Hebrew and other Middle Eastern languages fascinated him, and he befriended many of London's best Jewish scholars because he wanted to learn the languages. He wanted to understand how all of those intricacies worked together. And this, of course, gave him much insight to be able to write a very excellent commentary later on the Old Testament. Now, from 29 to 56, Gill delivered Wednesday evening sermonic lectures on biblical theology, which drew people from many denominations, uh, from all over town. They came to hear him on Wednesday evenings deliver these sermonic lectures. Uh, and his sermons, not just the lectures, but these sermons in general, demonstrate his careful thinking, and he always expresses his ideas carefully, clearly, and directly. Now, he was awarded an honorary DD, Doctorate of Divinity, by the University of Aberdeen, Aberdeen in 1748, uh, without question, Gill was a doctrinal preacher, and he used the pulpit to put forth sermons on many areas of theology. I mean, there was, there was really no significant area of theology he didn't touch, certainly not in all the years that he had to, to fill that pulpit. I mean, he talked about the Trinity and the fall of man, original sin, the plan of redemption, Christology, you name it, he hit it. In particular, 
Um, and we've already sort of seen how um, Joseph Priestley, you know, Unitarian, uh, was rebelling against the Trinity, and, and how uh, you know, non-Baptist, you know, reacted to him and debated him. How Horsley um, responded to that charge. Well, likewise, Gill uh, affirmed the Trinity at a time when a number of other London preachers, popular preachers, were inclined to question uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Weber writes, Gill was especially distressed at any effort to claim for man the slightest credit for salvation and to take from the Savior the entire process of man's redemption. I think that's a fair assessment. Again, we have to be mindful of, of Weber's own theological leanings. He, he's not particularly always favorable to Calvinists, but uh, even so, I think he's correct here. I mean, Gill certainly was very you know, passionate to make sure that people understood that salvation was all of God. It's all of grace. It's nothing that we bring to the equation whatsoever. And so I think, at least in that, that's a fair assessment. Opinions and assessments of Gill just run the gamut. Uh, Hall, Robert Hall, we'll talk about him in a moment, didn't believe there was much to Gill. Uh, Top Lady believed that uh, this age has not produced a more learned, pious, and profound divine than Gill. He was, Top Lady said, I believe the greatest man the Baptists have ever enjoyed. Again, that was in the 18th century context there. So, again, quite a, a range of opinion about him uh, from great preacher Robert Hall saying, eh, not a whole lot to him, to somebody like Augustus Tuplady saying, he, he's as good as it gets. <clears throat> now, Gill was one of the earliest writing Baptist theologians. He is known for two works in particular among several uh, that you could cite here. Number one is his exposition of the Old and New Testaments. Now, he wrote the, I believe it was the New Testament part first in three volumes, and then the Old Testament later in six volumes, again, for a total of nine, over a period of about 20 years, from 45 until 66. And certainly, this is his magnum opus. Uh, he um, you know, really outdid himself here. Again, there's not many people who have produced an entire Bible commentary you know, I mean, for example, we, we've just seen recently uh, John MacArthur finish his New Testament commentary. He just recently issued the last volumes on Mark, and so they're out now. And so he's completed his entire New Testament commentary. Uh, but it's, he's been at work for this for a long, long time. So just something for you to compare with there. The other work of Gill's that is significant and is uh, important for us to know about is his Body of Practical Divinity which came out in 1770, just before his death, and this is his systematic theology uh, that he prepared. So a very, very good work, very helpful. Um, I believe it normally f finds itself in two volumes, and um, so we can still get reprints of that available today. It's great, great stuff. Now, there is certainly debate over whether or not Gill himself was a hyper-Calvinist, and this debate's been going on for a while. Many scholars believe he was. There are a few, I think, from what I can see, there are fewer voices that argue that he was not a hyper-Calvinist in comparison to those who say that he was. Tom Nettles, for example, uh, Dr. Nettles believes that he was not a hyper-Calvinist proper. Uh, so, uh, you know, you, you can't just ignore what he has to say. You can't overlook that. You can read his argumentation. But there are still a lot of scholars who will uh, come out and say that he was himself hyper-Calvinist, not just that he might have taught and preached that somewhat, or not just that he influenced it, not just that he helped to promote it, 
and prompted uh, prompt that movement, but that he himself was actually of that persuasion. Regardless, though, whether he was or whether he wasn't, Gill's very high Calvinism was a contributing factor to the oppressive, non-evangelistic state that existed within much of Baptist life and even further in the early 18th century. Uh, he certainly had an influence upon it. Again, he's, he's a man who's very concerned about doctrine. His man is very concerned about theology. Again, nothing wrong with that. We certainly have to be careful, though, as, as preachers and pastors that we... Make sure that we are considering our audience, though, when we are teaching and preaching and communicating these things, that we make sure that they're getting a balanced diet of these things and know what to do with what we're giving them. They know how to use it. They know how to apply these things to their lives and and, and use them in a way that's glorifying to God. So uh, one of the... If you're interested in reading more about this, let me suggest that you get out your red books. If, you've, if you have these in your possession, there are three volumes of the British Particular Baptists, and, and these are between the years of 1638 and 1910. In the first volume, there is a biography of John Gill, written an essay on him written by Oliver, and uh, it is you know several pages in length, a very... Uh, very excellent essay, very helpful, gives you lots of particulars about Gill's life. Uh, Robert Oliver does a tremendous job on that. But I just wanted to read a little bit um, at the back where he talks about his view of Gill, which is that he was hyper-Calvinist. He says, in this chapter, I've deliberately avoided addressing in depth the question as to whether John Gill was hyper-Calvinist because I believe that preoccupation with this issue has promoted a tendency to overlook his important contribution to orthodox dissent and the particular Baptist community, and certainly that can happen. You zero in on this one controversy, this one aspect, and you forget all the other good stuff that he did. And so that's a real problem. Recent reference to the question makes it impossible to ignore this completely. That he stood in the Calvinist tradition, there can be no doubt. There remains the question as to whether he went beyond the Calvinism of the Genevan reformer and also beyond that of the Puritans and the particular Baptist fathers of the previous century. And here he goes. There can be no doubt that Gill denied the free offer of the gospel which the historic confessions of the 17th century proclaimed, and that he made his position clear on more than one occasion. Equally, there can be no doubt that he taught the doctrine of eternal justification, okay, that you're justified even before creation, uh, which was condemned by the confessions of the 17th century. Modern attempts to argue that Gill was not a hyper-Calvinist have not been convincing. In part, confusion seems to have arisen because of dependence on the interpretations of W.T. Whiteley, a historian, and A.C. Underwood, another historian, neither of whom were sympathetic towards Calvinism and neither of whom is a safe guide in the interpretation of John Gill. A further cause of confusion arises from the popular view that hyper-Calvinists are never concerned for the salvation of sinners. There are many examples of hyper-Calvinists who have a deep concern for the salvation of the lost. So again, that's a a pointless argument. Gill was one such, and examples can be produced of him expressing a concern for such and pressing those who were awakened to seek salvation. His hyper-Calvinism appears in the absence of direct exhortations and appeals to the unconverted to turn from their sin in repentance and to cast themselves upon Christ. It is at this point that I am compelled to part company with John Gill. So that's Oliver's position. Again, whether that's yours or not, that's up for you to decide. But regardless, 
Gil did do many good and wonderful and helpful things, and we need not forget that. So even if he was involved here, I mean, it's kind of like Richard Baxter. Again, not a Baptist, but, but you know, Baxter did so many good things and has left us such a rich heritage of so many good things in his ministry, even though he was dead wrong on justification. Uh, absolutely, totally erroneous on that. His understanding was very um, unbiblical and incorrect on that. But again, so much other good stuff for us to to benefit from, and so we don't want to ignore that. Let's go back to our notes for a moment. Um, Dr. Nettles, on the other side, has said, perhaps rather than imputing blame upon Gill for the leanness of the times, again, talking about the oppressive hyper-Calvinism, how lean everything was as a result, he should be credited with preserving gospel purity which eventuated in the efforts to use means for the conversion of the heathen. And indeed, that's something that is certainly worth considering, worth remembering, is that he did seek to preserve the pure gospel, and in time, it worked itself out so that uh, people were not hindered from using various means to try to encourage others to hear, understand, and obey the gospel. And this ties in with the efforts that John Gill made to keep that gospel pure throughout. So we, he wasn't um, you know, able to be indicted on all counts there. So I think that's a helpful balance for us. Again, regardless of where, the, where you land on the debate or whether you land on the argument, uh, I think that we need to keep that in mind. So again, um, John Gill, great preacher, Extremely long tenure at that church that would eventually be pastored by none other than Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Remember, as that congregation grew under Keach, it enlarged to something like a thousand people attending regularly. In time, they had to move. They had to uh, change their address because they just simply didn't have enough space at that location for them to uh, accommodate everybody. And in time, they moved. And of course, in time, that moved on into... Uh, you know, totally different uh, nomenclature, you know, becoming Park Street and then uh, a Metropolitan Tabernacle under Spurgeon. Let's talk about our second preacher for the night, and one that really gets overlooked most of the time, and that's Robert Hall, Jr., Uh, 1764 to 1831. Yes, he does go a bit into the 19th century, but uh, had such a huge role to play in the 18th, I think we need to consider him for a moment. Born at Arnsbury in Leicestershire, his father, Robert Hall Sr., was the pastor of the small little Baptist church that was there. Uh, he was the he was himself a preacher and pastor of the highest caliber. Senior was Robert was the fourteenth child, and from birth he had a very feeble constitution, and he was plagued with health concerns all of his life. Never got over the, and apparently, you know, died just racked with pain, uh, racked with discomfort. Often, I read as I was reading about this, uh, he, in later part of his life, would dictate his sermons while laying flat on the floor, trying to get some relief from his back pain. Uh, so, uh, just racked with pain his whole life, and that certainly impacted his preaching. Uh, when, when you have to deal with something like that constantly, it does affect the way you think. It affects the way you do things. And certainly that was true for him. He had a remarkable intellect that was evident from a very early age, obviously a very intelligent, even precocious child. 
His education began with his nurse, apparently a very faithful lady, uh, stayed with him a number of years, and uh, she was taking him through the cemetery. They were out just getting some air. Of course, his father was the pastor, so they probably lived near the church, possibly even connected to the church building, and so they would have been close to the graveyard. So she takes him outside for fresh air and maybe some exercise if he could stand that, and She's teaching him the letters on the tombstone. She's teaching him what the numbers mean. She's putting all that together for him, and he picks it up quickly. At nine, he had read Jonathan Edwards on the freedom of the will, bless his heart, and Butler's analogy to boot, and he understood them. Not just that he got through them, but he comprehended what they said. He, he understood their arguments. Now, Robert also had many conversations with a member of his father's church who was able to discuss philosophy while Robert was playing in his shop. Robert would go and visit this member of the congregation who, who had uh, an aptitude for philosophy, and, and he got into conversations with him and talked with him about these things. So it wasn't just playing, wasn't just wasting his time, but he was actually engaging this uh, member of the church in discussions about philosophical matters. Now, a couple of years later, at age 11, he was already so advanced in his studies that the teacher told his father that he couldn't instruct him any further. In other words, I've taken him as far as I can go with him. I've exhausted everything I can instruct him in. So he was sent to John Ryland, another important Baptist uh, of that period. Uh, John Ryland, very good friend of Andrew Fuller. So we need to remember him. Uh, but he was with him for 18 months where he learned Latin, Greek, and other subjects. And then after a period of particularly ill health, which kind of interrupted uh, his studies for, for, a little t for a little while there, he went to the Bristol Academy, again, an important educational institution uh, that helped to meet the needs of a number of Baptists in that 18th century period. He studied there for three to four years, and then when he was 14, his father baptized him and gave him some basic instructions regarding the ministry. Again, his father was a preacher and pastor, so he was able to impart to his son many things he needed to know about what was involved in being a pastor. And, and certainly, Robert was just soaking all this in like a sponge. He was just taking it all in and would certainly put it to good use later. Now, again, he was a Baptist, so at this time, English universities were not open to dissenters. And so he attended the University of Aberdeen and was graduated with distinction from that institution. He did very well. Uh, even during his days at Bristol, at the Bristol Academy, Robert began preaching. He had been licensed to do so by his father's church, but his early efforts were not very successful. Again, when, when you deal, as he did, with the health concerns that were uh, ever-present almost in his body and trying to you know, overcome the difficulties that they were causing you, you, know, you, you just have to learn, you have to work your way through uh, to be able to uh, achieve what you want. Now, while at Aberdeen, he served as assistant to Pastor Caleb Evans. You'll find Caleb Evans in the Red Books. He's another one of those great uh, British Baptist, particular Baptist pastors, and he assisted him as best as he could, however he could, while he was engaged in his studies, and Robert was appointed uh, at, at the same time as a classical tutor at Bristol Academy. Now, he, as he grew up, of course, and gained knowledge, understanding, and experience, he, uh, his, his preaching likewise matured, 
even surpassing that of Caleb Evans, who was his um, pastor and, 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 and the person that he was helping. But even so, he was able to continue to serve in his capacity as an assistant. Uh, so just, again, think about the patience that he would had to have had here, you know, knowing that he had gifts and abilities superior to the Caleb Evans, superior to the man who was pastor of this church. And yet he remained, as far as we know, submissive and humble and did not try to exert himself or in any way, um, you know, make Caleb feel badly uh, that he did not have the same gifts as Robert. Now, in 1784, upon hearing Robert preach, Andrew Fuller and John Ryland both wrote in their journals that they were very moved at his preaching. Uh, so they were, uh, Fuller in particular just said, you know, may, may the Lord keep this young man. Uh, he just, you know, he, he, he knew that he had difficulties. He knew that he'd had struggles, but he knew that he was passionate as a preacher. He knew that he was zealous to share the gospel uh, from pulpits, and so he asked you know, prayerfully for the Lord to just care for him, take care of him, protect him, and assist him in his, in his journey. Then a few years later in 1791, Robert succeeded Robert Robinson as the pastor of the Baptist Church at Cambridge. Now, <clears throat> he comes into this new pastorate. Right away, he's experiencing a number of problems, and these are stressful for him, uh, causing him some anxiety, causing him some distress. And again, when, when you're already physically taxed, as he was, it doesn't take much to begin to, you know, cause you to become a little more unstable emotionally and mentally. You'll see that happen in just a moment. Now, as he experienced difficulties, even so, he drew large crowds because he was a gifted preacher. Uh, even, as we said, you know, surpassing the gifts of Caleb Evans, he was very good. Fuller and Ryland both complimenting him, acknowledging him, acknowledging his abilities, but the difficulties at the Church of Cambridge combined with his poor health caused him to break down, both physically and mentally. He became unbalanced for a time, but then recovered. But later, he had a subsequent attack that was more severe, and he had to spend some time in a sanatorium. So he had, he had to go into this, into this institution where he could you know, have time, have some therapy, as much as they knew how to do in that day. In fact, it was a long time, really, even into the 20th century, before, you know, people were really able to get uh, good, reliable help if they had mental or emotional breakdowns or problems. I've experienced that in my own family. My grandfather uh, had a similar situation. But his physician, while he was at the sanatorium, prescribed him three things. Number one, leave Cambridge. Number two, smoke. And number three, get married. Robert did all three, and he never lost his mind again. He resigned Cambridge, which, of course, was the source of many problems. The smoking seemed to, to calm him. It just had a sort of a relaxing effect on him. And then he married a woman of excellent character and good sense who could help him, who could communicate with him, talk with him about these you know, complex ideas and things that he had on his mind, and she could take care of him and help to meet his physical needs. <clears throat> now, he moved to Leicester in 1806 and served as pastor of the Baptist Church there until 1825. By all accounts, he was a successful pastor and preacher with marvelous gifts and abilities. We've already seen evidence of that from various accounts. Now, Robert did not write out <clears throat> excuse me, his sermons beforehand. He prepared them 
through uh, thought and prayer. You know, he thought through what he was going to say, prayed about it, and just sort of had it all in his head. And then he would speak from an outline, but he wouldn't speak from a manuscript or from a fully written out message. Now, his voice was somewhat feeble, again, due to his physical difficulties. Uh, But to compensate, he spoke more quickly so as to hold people's attention better and, and make sure that they didn't lose track in, in the middle of what he was trying to say. So he sped up. He spoke more quickly, and that helped uh, to, to solve the problem. It was a successful fix for the, the difficulty. Now, mental troubles did not plague him as badly in the latter decades of life as, he, as they had earlier, but he still battled with much pain and discomfort in other parts of his body, Interestingly, uh, Robert returned to his former smaller congregation at Bristol in 1826, so it's almost as if he's come full circle uh, there in these latter years of his life, and he served there about five years until he died in 1831. Again, just a, a remarkable preacher, again, preaching in the midst of adversity, not just a congregation that isn't necessarily always supportive of him, but just preaching in the midst of physical difficulties and hardships. Uh, and yet doing it with, with skill, doing it with accomplishment, doing it in a way that uh, holds audiences and endears himself to them so they'll listen to what he says and respond to his message. <clears throat> I want to share a little bit from Dargan's account of Robert Hall regarding his character. The character of Robert Hall was suitable to his genius. He was honest, sincere, outspoken, with a tendency to severity. He had a keen wit and could be very sarcastic when he chose. Speaking of a certain bishop who had been spoiled by office, in other words, a bishop who'd become corrupt, he said, poor man, I pity him. He married public virtue in his early days, but seemed forever afterwards to be quarreling with his wife. He was no great admirer of Dr. Gill whom we've just talked about. In a talk with Christmas Evans, who did admire that author and expressed his wish that Dr. Gill's works had been written in Welsh, Mr. Hall said, I wish they had, sir. I wish they had with all my heart, for then I should never have read them. They are a continent of mud. That's a pretty famous quote from him, by the way. They are a continent of mud. We've already noticed his opinion of Chalmers. Yeah, that's something he wrote earlier. Now, of Wesley, he said, the most extraordinary thing about him was that while he was uh, set all in motion, he was himself perfectly calm and phlegmatic. He was the quiescence of turbulence. The quiescence of turbulence. Interesting comparison for John Wesley. Of Whitfield, he spoke as presenting the contrast of mediocrity in writing with wonderful power in speaking which could not be expressed in writing, for, quote, it is impossible to paint eloquence. And again, that's Whitfield, wasn't he? He wasn't particularly educated, wasn't a big theologian. He was just a forceful and powerful preacher. And that's, that's the comparison he's trying to say there. You, you can't really put your finger on it, but the man's just got the gift. In his pastoral work and relations with others, Mr. Hall was kind, affectionate, and sincere. So there's Robert Hall, Jr., another important Baptist preacher of the 18th century into the 19th, and uh, a man who, again, had many difficulties physically and otherwise, and yet with the Lord's help was able to overcome them and, and be able really to be a success in many ways 
in what he did. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.